You spoke about the rise of nationalism and Ukrainian nationalism, Polish nationalism. Is there a reoccurring theme in Jewish history whereby the heroes of Ukrainian Polish nationalism are deemed as the evil enemies of the Jewish people? I mean, is this a recurring theme? Is it black and white? Is it more nuanced than that? Well, I mean, a a recurring theme, uh, look, I mean, nationalism as such is a relatively new phenomenon. So what we identify as nationalism, as historians, is something that you could say begins somewhere in the second part of the 18th century, but in Eastern Europe really appears in the 19th century. And in the parts of the world that we are talking about is really the second part of the 19th century. if we think about it that way, uh, then I would say that, um, um, let me put it that way, that nationalism in the 19th century, uh, not only Ukrainian or Polish or Jewish, and many other nationalisms, then read their own national or nationalist narratives back. And so they attribute nationalist uh, aspirations, uh, or they describe national heroes uh, at a time when there was no such concept as nationalism. Uh, So we have to understand that sometimes what you uh, refer to as nationalism is an invention of the 19th century nationalist historians, novelists, and so forth. Specifically on this case that you mentioned on Jewish-Ukrainian relations, Certainly, there is a major tension between what uh, Ukrainian nationalism, including Ukrainian nationalism looking backward, uh, sees as its heroes and Jews, uh, and not only nationalist Jews, but Jews of different persuasions, see as the scourge of the Jews. Uh, Now, that is generally... I would say in this case, dated back to 1648. That is to the first Cossack uprising by Bohdan Khmelnytsky and the, 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 the Zaporozhian host. Um, and uh, Khmelnytsky is seen within the Ukrainian national narrative as the first, the founder of the first Ukrainian really Cossack state. Uh, in Jewish memory, and of course also in Polish memory, uh, he's seen as the scourge of the Jews or as the destroyer or near destroyer of the Polish common, um, Lithuanian um, Commonwealth. Um, and that continues then into World War I, into Simon Petliura, who is seen as the other great Ukrainian um, leader of the second attempt to create an independent Ukrainian state, and by Jews is associated to the mass killings of Jews, uh, up to 100,000 Jews who died uh, around 1919 um, during the wars over Ukraine. And finally, to the heroes, the revived heroes of Ukrainian nationalism, of um, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, of the Ukrainian insurgent army of the 1930s and 1940s, whose memory was suppressed by the communists um, between 
the re-Sovietization of this area and Ukrainian independence in 1991 and then revived after 1991 as Ukrainian freedom fighters and who are seen in Jewish memory as the the Banderivtsi, the Banderovtsi, the Banderites, those who were under uh, Stepan Bandera, uh, the leader of the uh, OUN, of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, radical faction, uh, and are seen as the murderers of Jews. So in that sense, it, there's a very sort of clear distinction. It's not only in Ukraine. You find similar themes in countries like Latvia, Lithuania, in Poland. I would add to that, of course, that there were Jews uh, in Ukraine, uh, as well as in Poland, uh, who uh, identified with Ukrainian or with Polish nationalism, uh, and some who were supportive of it. Uh, but in the kind of collective national memory of Jews and Ukrainians, uh, this is a very difficult chapter and a very, I'd say, major tension. Without getting too much into current day politics, is is the historical narrative between such the, the, the disparate and different these historical narratives are they bridgeable how does one how does one bridge those two narratives when you're talking about perhaps today two countries that have such different narratives well i yes i think they are in fact uh and i think they are at least in two ways uh complementary uh two complementary ways uh first of all in uh recalling uh, the world that had existed before these antagonistic and exclusionary uh, nationalist narratives came to the scene. And that's in some ways the world that I try to describe in Tales from the Borderlands, that these were areas in which different groups lived side by side. And while, you know, these were not harmonious societies, we should we should not sentimentalize them. It was not utopia. But people knew that world only as such and in in many ways enriched each other through the different tradition, different languages, different understandings of the world, different understandings of where they came from, what they were and where they were heading to. So to recalling that pre-nationalist, particularly this kind of bloody-minded nationalism, uh, the world before that can certainly um, be one way of going against the, the exclusionary and antagonistic nationalist narrative. The second one is to take, for instance, the case of contemporary Ukraine. And Ukraine has, after independence, sort of struggled between these two poles. One is a more uh, ethno-nationalist one, and one is a view of Ukraine as a more uh, inclusive state, as a more diverse society. Uh, and just before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine elected a president who happened to be Jewish. He was not elected because he was Jewish, but nobody uh, um, tried to uh, oppose his election because it was a Jew. It, it, it was simply not a topic. Uh, and so there was a very different kind of uh, notion of Ukraine as being a place 
and not only an ethnos, a place in which uh, Armenians and Greeks and Russians and Jews and Ukrainians um, and others, uh, Roma had, had lived together, Germans had lived together for centuries uh, and to revive that notion. So I think it is politically uh, also um, 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 a, a potential, um, I'd say, notion of undoing the kind of um, story of exclusionary nationalism. But it's difficult. And we know in Poland, there were sort of shifts uh, to one direction and then to another. The same is happening now in the Baltic states. It's often a response to outside threats as well as to internal uh, fears, socioeconomic turmoil. but I think, yes, I think we don't have to accept that neither in Eastern Europe nor, for that matter, in, in the state of Israel, in, uh, where, where Zionism uh, established itself as an, as an ethno-national uh, movement. We, we recently uh, interviewed uh, Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, who was one of the directors of the Shai Agnon House in Jerusalem. And obviously, he talked about Agnon's magnum opus, um, Bukach's portrayal. Is that portrayal in line, congruent to your family's memories of the city? You mean the, the portrayal of Bukach by Agnon? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, you know, um, my, my family's memories of Bukach. Um, um, primarily based on um, my mother's memories, which I talk about at some length in, right. in Tales from the Borderlands. And my mother left Buchach when she was 11. And so what she tells of Buchach, and she came to Palestine in 1935, so she was born in 1924. Agnon left uh, Buchach before World War I. Uh, and so the world that he describes in his various writings, um, and certainly in the in the sort of his last uh, posthumous book, Irum uh, Loa, the city whole, or or as it's uh, known now, a, a city in its fullness, uh, in the translation by by um, Alan Mintz and others, and 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 Zach, um, it's it's a very different Buchach. Uh, Agnon writes about. Uh, Buchach in 1930 uh, in his book, uh, A Guest for the Night. And that's the Buchach that my mother grew up in. But um, the way he sees it in that, in A Guest for the Night, is through the prism of the Buchach that he knew before World War I. So what he sees there is the decline of the Jewish community uh, as a result of what we talked about before, uh, the destruction and depopulation uh, of that area during World War One. For my mother, of course, this was totally different because she was born into that world. Um, and so it's a, uh, I would say that they're complementary, but they're not telling the same story. Uh, additionally, um, for Agnon, uh, Buchach was a place, uh, was a memory, but it was also something else. Uh, it was a literary construct, of course, 
but it was also a kind of microcosmos of East Europeans, especially small town East European Jewish civilization. And so what he tries to tell in his stories is to recreate that world that in many ways he already felt had uh, declined and was kind of doomed uh, before the Holocaust uh, in the 1920s and 30s, and then was completely destroyed in uh, World War II. Uh, and so we have to read Agnon through that. It's not a social history of the place. It is also an attempt to recreate an entire civilization. What um, Galicia stories, memories, um, whether it's of your mother or others that you discovered that personally were most impactful on you? Oh, uh, <laughs> there's so many. Um, uh, let me let me give you um, <clears throat> give you two examples that I talk about in the book, um, and they're both uh, they relate to Agnon, they relate to the city, uh, and they reflect something much bigger than that. Uh, the first is this, a story that uh, Agnon tells. Uh, um, in in this last book, in the city in its fullness, um, uh, about the creation of the uh, city's uh, city hall of the Ratush or Ratusha, uh, Rathaus uh, of Buchach. Now that's a very famous edifice. Uh, uh, people still come to Buchach today to see it. Uh, although it's not in its height of glory because it had many, many sculptures. And most of these sculptures uh, have disappeared over the years, either eroded by the weather because of the many wars, some have been put in museums and so forth. Um, the, the interesting story here is that Agron tries in, in his book to explain why the religious Jews uh, the pious Jewish community of Buchach loves this beautiful um, Rococo edifice that was built in the middle of the 18th century, and especially uh, covered with sculptures of uh, naked men. Uh, how do you reconcile that with this being a pious Jewish community that is not supposed to be an amour of these kind of representations of humanity and this kind of architecture. And so the story that he tells is a fiction. Uh, we know who created the city hall and we know who the artist was who sculpted these uh, extraordinary figures. And Agno probably knew it too, uh, but he tells a different story. And the story that he tells is, in a, is his attempt to um, normalize this for the community. Uh, and so he tells a story that um, the owner of the city, this was a private city, a private town owned by Potocki at the time by Nikolai Potocki, uh, wanted to beautify a city, which is true. And therefore he brought an architect to, to build for him a new um, city hall, which is also true. Uh, that we know historically. However, the one that in Agnon's story was brought is a man who was called Theodore. 
And the Theodore was an archetype brought from Italy, and that is not the actual person who did that. Uh, and this Italian architect came, and there is some grain of truth to that in the sense that uh, many Pol Polish nobles already in the 16th century invited Italian architects to build cities and edifices for them. So this Theodore comes and builds this beautiful uh, city hall. And Potocki, once the city hall's construction is completed, becomes very worried because he's afraid that now Theodore would go and build another one for another city. And then he will not have his unique city hall. And so he, he locks him up uh, in, the, uh, in his own city hall. And poor Theodore, desperate to liberate himself, takes some of the remaining construction materials, builds himself wings, and tries to fly away from the tower of the city hall. And he manages to fly uh, far enough across the river, the Strepa, and then he crashes on the hill on the other side and is killed. Now, that hill is known as Fedor Hill. And Theodore in Ukrainian is Fedor, Fedir in uh, Ukrainian. So that's the reason why it's called that. Um, but the subtext of the story is why did Theodore create these sculptures? And there, Aglon tells that as he was building the city hall, Theodore was wandering around the streets of Buchach. And one day he was walking around, Buchach was mostly Jewish, and the streets were empty. Nobody was on the streets. And then he heard people singing in a room, and he looked through the windows, and he saw people dressed in white, and they were singing, and they were praying. That is, he sees young people. Everyone is in the synagogue, and they're all praying. And that brings back to him a deeply repressed memory of his own childhood, that he, in fact, was a Jewish child who the last thing that he saw was a, um, a, a Yom Kippur prayer. And then as his sister was taking him back home, he was kidnapped by some priests who handed him over to an Italian architect. And that's how he too became the Italian architect. And so when he created these figures, these figures were actually sculpted on the model of the Jews of Buchach that he saw. That he wanted to, whose memory he wanted to perpetuate. And so, in that sense, the whole edifice, including the sculptures, are modeled on the Jewish community of Puchach itself. And that's a very typical kind of Agnon way of telling a beautiful story, of explaining something that is difficult to explain, and of making these links of the, the sort of long trajectory of Jewish history and Jewish, I'd say, relation with its Gentile environment. So that's one story. Uh, I can tell you the other one. I don't know if you have enough no, time. No, please, please, no, please, please. Uh, the second story is something that I actually ended up uh, um, uh, having a sort of very small part in myself. Uh, so that, that was especially curious. So as I said, uh, in 1930, uh, Agnon visited Buchach for the second time. He visited it once uh, before World War I, and then he came there again in 1930. And he was there just for a week, uh, but he wrote the book that was the 
main cause for his eventual winning the uh, Nobel Prize in Literature in 1966. The book was published in 1939, um, uh, um, A Guest for the Night. And um, in, that's, a, that's a beautiful book in which his protagonist spends a whole year in Buchach. Um And in one of this protagonist encounters, he's walking down the street and he meets someone that he knows. And the person that he meets uh, in the story uh, used to be a, a youth with him in Buchach many years earlier. And they begin to talk. And the man he meets tells him, you know, I was an anarchist and I went to America and you were a Zionist and you went to Eretz Israel. And here we are now, we meet here. And they talk uh, nostalgically about those years before World War I, before the world had changed completely, when they still had hopes and aspirations. And as uh, the man he meets says, you know, uh, I wanted to change the world as an anarchist and you wanted to change the world as a Zionist and neither this happened and neither that happened. And here we are again, we meet on the street in Buchach, which is not called Buchach there, but but, but Chibush, which is Agnon's name for Buchach, which, you, as you know, means also that something went wrong. It's a kind of um, a linguistic trick by Agnon. Now, as part of that conversation, uh, that man tells him that um, one thing he remembers was a beautiful woman that he knew, a brunette seamstress. Uh, and he even recalls a song that they used to sing together and he sings it again. Uh, and he says, you know, I recently uh, saw her again and she forgave me for my sins. Uh and we don't know who that is. And we don't know, did Agnon, did he actually meet this guy? When, when you read the book, it's, it's fiction. Obviously, there's no reason to think that such a person actually existed. But when I was uh, studying the various characters who had lived in Buchach, I ran into the Nacht family. And the Nacht family, um, the, the, the father, who was born in 1848, uh, was a doctor and was a famous doctor in uh, Buchach before and after World War One, And he had two sons, and both of them became anarchists. Uh, one of them uh, was called Max Nacht. And Max Nacht spent uh, um, many years from the beginning of the 20th century until 1913, probably, uh, wandering around Europe as an anarchist. He lived in Switzerland and so forth. Uh, and he had a liaison. Uh, there was a woman called uh, Sabina, uh, who and, and at some point he describes as his wife in letters, at some point as his partner. Um, but he left uh, the United States on the eve of world, uh, uh, Europe on the eve of World War One, and went to the United States. And we know that he visited Europe in 1930. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe this anarchist is Maxnach. But one day I received a letter from a retired uh, French physician. Um, 
That was after my book uh, Erased came out. So that's quite a few years ago. The book came out in 2007. And this man, Canfer uh, uh, or Canfer, uh, told me that he uh, was raised Catholic, but he knows that some of his family had Jewish connections. And uh, he believes that they came from Buchach. And would I be able to sort of tell him something about that? So a few months later, I was in Paris and we met and we had a long conversation. And gradually, I put the story together. Uh, Max Nacht left Sabina in Paris and went to America. And it appears that she was already pregnant. I don't know if he knew it. And she had a son. Um, and that son um, uh, married uh, married a, a Catholic French woman. Uh, um, and their child was uh, this man, uh, Canfer, uh, whom I met in Paris. And the Canfer family is a family that has its own extraordinary uh, Buchach history, uh, where one of the members of the family was a teacher of Agnons in Buchach. Uh, another, the son of the teacher, um, became a very uh, well-known uh, journalist uh, in Krakow uh, and was involved in Yiddish theater. And he and his wife were murdered by the Nazis. And this man's daughter ended up in Paris and became a poet, Irene Canfer, became a poet and a translator of Yiddish poetry into French. And so an entire world opened up that begins in 1848 and among other things ends up in Agnon's story and this encounter in 1930, Buchach. This has been fascinating, really just, just a, a, a glimpse and um, urge all of our um, listeners and viewers Simply um, purchase the book. It's it's a wonderful tales from the borderline borderlands, making and unmaking the glitchian past. And uh, Professor Barto, thank you so much um, for your time today. It was really uh, fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much.